And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com video lock your front door, your sanity. Hormone levels may be less of a problem than neurochemical levels, actually. Dopamine, serotonin, and a couple of the neurochemicals decline over time. That is true. This is where pharmacology gets interesting. What they're actually finding is SSRIs, which are actually terrible for depression, like a hammer for depression. Why does the impossible become possible? Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. His work has been translated into over 50 languages. If you want to treat depression, you may want to increase serotonin levels, but you want to do it in very specific parts of the brain. Is flow the secret to reducing cognitive decline? Flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. When we say peak performance, I don't mean anything fancier than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. What is that biology is essentially the question you ask. Is it just flow? The answer is What role does technology play in human performance. What does it take to achieve the impossible? That's been the question I've spent 30 years trying to answer. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They've supported the podcast for almost two years now. Obviously, if you have never used HubSpot or have ever heard of it, you're just tuning into the podcast for the first time because I've spoken about HubSpot a lot. But HubSpot is a tool that you need if you are a business leader. And now they're helping you incorporate AI into your processes. See, AI is eating the web as we speak. And what that means for a business leader is this. The time to embrace AI technology is now. Because for people like us, automation helps us do more with less while continuing to meet and exceed those incredibly high business expectations we set for ourselves. It's basically magic or honestly as close as we're going to get as business leaders. And if you haven't tried HubSpot's new AI features, you have to do that. Content Assistant and ChatSpot are two brand new tools that will immediately save you and your team tons of time. 
HubSpot's features run on ChatGPT's tech to help you make compelling content and manage your CRM way faster than before. We're talking ad copy, data analytics, workflow automations, all with a chat command. So head to HubSpot.com slash artificial dash intelligence. Today, my guest is Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He is the author of 11 bestsellers out of 14 books, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold, and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 50 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Wall Street Journal, Time, and the Harvard Business Review. What, what role does technology play in human performance? It's a great question. And it's sort of my work has focused it as a central question. What does it take to achieve the impossible? That's been the question I've spent 30 years trying to answer. And whenever you see the impossible become possible, okay, slight overstatement. The vast majority of the time when you see the impossible become possible, you're seeing the intersection of two things. You're seeing somebody figure out how to expand human capability. Usually that's going to involve flow and other aspects of sort of cognitive peak performance or, or just peak performance. You also see people leveraging disruptive technology. So half of my, especially accelerating exponential technology, this, the ideas that Peter Diamandis and I have written about in, in bold abundance and the future is faster than you think. And in fact, then this was, this was my beat as a journalist. I covered action sports, right? And I covered neuroscience, yeah. but I also, my job for like, 50 different publications was those moments that sci-fi became some science fact. I was the guy in the room. So how did you ask me off the air, how I met Peter Diamandis long before the X prize was anything, but like a wild idea in Peter that he had just sort of announced to the world in whispers. I heard about it and I was like, Oh my God, somebody's going to build a private spaceship. That's sci-fi. And I like, I, I wrote the first major story on the X prize cause, um, and I have, I had like some insider knowledge, in a very weird way, and I knew everybody in the world thought the X Prize wasn't gonna work, but because of the weird world I had just walked out of, I'd worked, I'd done a very crazy aerospace story and about the guys trying to drive a car through the sound barrier on the face of the earth, right? And I covered yeah. this whole story and it was giant competition, huge tech. And my friend was the head engineer for one of the teams. And him and all the other engineers, I used to go drinking with them and they would say the same thing over and over and over and over again. It is harder to drive a car through the sound barrier on Earth than it is to put a rocket into orbit. Over and over. That was their metaphor. You heard it, I heard it like 50,000 times. And then my next story, I hear about Peter and I go meet Peter. Everybody thinks he's crazy. Every, like I call the aerospace companies. They say, this dude is nuts. He can't do it. I call NASA. They're like, oh, he's freaking crazy. Don't even talk to him. But I am literally talked to these top aerospace engineers for a month. And they kept saying, this is harder. And they drove a car through the sound barrier on the surface of the earth. I watched it happen. And I was like, well, if this is harder, somebody's going to do this. And I believed them. And I, so when everybody else said, Peter's crazy, I went, no, no, I think he's right. And that I started covering aerospace. And that was, you know, one example. But when the very world's first bionic eye got turned on, the very first blind man who could see again, 
I was actually in the room, you know, as it got turned on. So over and over and over again, I put myself into this world where sci-fi becomes sci-fact and you always see the same thing. You're seeing scientists figuring out how to drop into flow and cook up some crazy, you know, use the boost in creativity and motivation that comes from flow to yeah. put this into, into practice. So it was really nicely nestled, um, especially if you're dealing like with entrepreneurs or innovators because they're very well versed in flow. Even if they don't have a language for it, they know what they do to drive themselves into flow. So for me, you know, I was learning about the athletics on one side, but I was like this great business study in like entrepreneurs and innovators with crazy ass ideas that nobody believes in dropping into flow and using the state to kind of like help push their, their, their tech along. And it was a really, so it was a really cool journey along the way. It's absolutely wild. Like the, the connection between flow and, and doing things that are seemingly impossible. Right. So I guess the question is, is flow required to, mm. to, to achieve this? Yeah. So it's a great question. And there are, um, there's, there's no one answer. Uh, so the answer, well, actually the answer is no, but there's a caveat. So if you, in the easiest place to get this particular answer is in professional sports. And if you talk to players and, and or coaches, they will all say the same thing. You can win a single game, championship level game without flow. You can do it. You can grit it out. You can tough it out. You can play your best. And in fact, come back to this with me. There's an, when there's a day, there's always a day that comes when you have to perform at your best without flow. And then from a learning perspective, that's the day you're actually looking for. So that we'll come back to that in a second. But the answer to your question with Korean coaches is you can do it once you cannot win a seven game series without flow. In fact, I once wrote, uh, I once wrote a piece. I don't remember where it was for maybe the Washington post. Um, and it was me and the former point guard from the university of Rhode Island basketball team. And we were talking about how in the final four in basketball, you can't win. You can win one of those games without flow, maybe two, but there's, it's a basketball is a game of my team's in flow. We've knocked the other team out of flow. Oh no. Now the other team's in flow. We got to get back in flow. Like the, it's literally the cognitive side of basketball is really amazing from that perspective. And so the thinking is you can't win an NBA championship, but you can win a Super Bowl. Right, you could show up for one game and grit it out and just do it, but it's not repeatable and it's exhausting. So anybody who's ever been through that experience, the recovery is like four or five or six or seven times as long afterwards because it's so grueling. Flow provides, among the things that neurochemicals do, you get a lot of pain relief. So in athletic activities, you're getting really, you know, there are 20 different endorphins in the brain, but the most common endorphin is a hundred times more potent than medical morphine. So these are heavy painkillers the brain produces naturally for us. You try doing something very physically challenging with no painkillers in your body. It's first of all, it's gonna, there's a little trauma there um, also. In fact, one of the things that's in our country sort of towards the end of the, of the book is a conversation I have with Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer about something that I'd never known before, which is that you can have, you can get PTSD from success, from physical, like I was out there doing hard, physically challenging things. I was doing them successfully. I was not crashing. I was not like I was pulling them all off, but the cumulative weight of all that fear at a certain point, like of going against pushing myself through a fear barrier day after day for like six months straight. By the end of it, there was like residual trauma. What uh, psychologists talk about is allostatic load or allostatic overload. But it literally, I had low grade PTSD 
from success, which I didn't even know was possible until I and, ran and this And is that because experiment. you're operating in flow state all the time and then the, the no no i know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and netsuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs for business owners because there's one thing that we all know business is about making money and it's about your bottom line and the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business the more profits you keep but these days everything is costing more supplies people shipping it squeezes your margins and i've been there juggling multiple systems for finance inventory you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn Jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn Jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
Com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. No, it's, it's, so it's a lot of it is you're not operating flow all the time, right? Understood, like okay. You have to go, You because if you're going to, I taught myself how to park ski, right? And it took yeah. six months, probably eight, five months. That meant I showed, I skied 88 days. So 88 days, I had to show up at the hill knowing I was there to do something that scared the, me to death and could possibly yeah. put me in the hospital. And it didn't matter that my my formula was working. I was doing it. I was doing it successfully. I wasn't going to the hospital. I was accomplishing my goals, but it didn't change the fact that confronting fear day after day after day, physical fear, um, I was not emotionally prepared for. And I think that the same thing is probably true. I think we have the same thing in say business challenges. I think part of like leveling up your game, cause you can level up your game and then not believe it's real. You know what I mean? You sort of get to that yeah. place and you're like, I'm here, but I don't know if I belong here. And sort of like you have this, it's not quite PTSD, but there's a lot more anxiety that starts to hurt your performance 
based around those sorts of, oh my God, I got here so quickly. There's, I got lucky. There's no way this shit could be real. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember the first, the very first time was my thirties that I successfully like started adding zeros to my income every month. You know what I mean? Like I was really moving the needle for the very first time. And I like, after like six months of it, I was just like, there's no way this shit could be real. I just got lucky. There's no, this is not like nothing like this. Guys like me don't make this kind of money. I'm like a punk rock kid from Cleveland. This isn't real. And yeah, that I, I think it took me like a year and a half to sort of get over that and get back to where I was. What does that actually do in terms of your ability to go into flow state and or so, uh, the inner workings of your yeah. body when you have that? I guess it's imposter syndrome. It's the best. Well, the only term yeah. The, I know so I want to say you hear a lot about imposter syndrome now um, uh, in overblown terms. I don't think there's mm -hmm. any way you become successful without going through a period, like you have to keep leveling up. You have to keep punching above your weight class, right? You're like, there's no possible way to do that. If you do that and show up at this new level and like, I belong here, I'm, I'm, I'm the shit. Like you're a narcissist or an egomaniac and you're gonna have those kind of problems. You know what I mean? Imposter syndrome is, I think the natural way we, we sort of grow that way, first of all. But the second thing I wanna say is, there's probably a, a, a bunch of cortisol hormonal body inflammation, stress stuff that I'm not going to really talk about. I'm going to talk about the impact on a really key structure in the brain, my, maybe my favorite structure in the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, very near the center of our brain. And it is the part of the brain that when you're facing a challenge, it makes the determination threat or opportunity, threat or opportunity. And among, it's part of that. And what it really does is it says, if you have a lot of fear in your, in the system, it wants you to be logical, linear. It doesn't want to try new things. It doesn't want to be creative. It wants to try something safe and secure. So, and this happens all unconsciously. So the more fear you have in your system, um, the less creative you're going to be and the less you'll lose your ability to learn because norepinephrine little bit primes you for learning too much blocks learning almost entirely. So too much fear in the system long-term, it, it, it kills all kinds of outside the box, real creative thinking. It also kills your squelches your motivation, squelches uh, your energy levels. Uh, in the end, leads to burnout. Um, but the biggest hit is that when we get freaked out, we can we lose the ability to think our way out of the situation because the part of your brain that can sort of think outside the box and and solve problems in a creative way is completely shut down. So for peak performance, I always say there's on a cognitive side there's what we call the peak performance basics of the Flow Research Collective. And on the cognitive side, you have to be constantly managing your emotions. So you have to have a daily way of keeping your nervous system in check. And you know, the standard three best are a daily gratitude practice, a daily mindfulness breath work practice, or regular exercise. And five minutes to do a mindfulness practice, 11 minutes to do breath work. And you know, you have to exercise until it gets quiet upstairs and your lungs open up, which is a signal that nitrous oxide has been released and stress hormones have been flushed out of your system. That's usually 20 to 40 minutes, depending on your fitness level. And if you work like, if you, if you work with my company, for example, um, I ask my employees to do one a day for sure. And during stressful times, like during COVID, you do three a day because I need peak performing, fast learning, creative individuals. And I also, uh, from a inverted perspective, one of the things that 
is very challenging in a business environment, I think, is you don't ever hire one person. You actually hire mm -hmm. two people. You hire the person they are when they're terrified, and you hire the person they are when everything's great, right? And when they're terrified, that's a very different person. And you ha and then if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an innovative, if you're a creative, if you're in any of those fields where you're gonna move fast and things are gonna break, and there's gonna be a lot of pressure, um, not knowing how a person functions when terrified is stupid. Like you're bringing somebody, you're bringing, you know, it, a time bomb into your organization. Um, but how do you actually, how do you actually, so. So one of the things that I like, topics, one of the things I like to do, final. yeah, when I, yeah. when I hire people, one of the things that I do is um, we, I, I, I put everybody through a, a series of tests where basically, I, you know, um, and one of them is an assignment there's no possible way they can complete. It's not like it's not actually physically doable. I know they're going to fail. I want to see how they're going to fail, how they communicate with me when they get scared, when they realize that it's impossible. It's, you know, all those things. I want to see what they're going to do. So that's how I do it. Other people may do it other different ways, but I literally put, you know, people in. Uh, and in fact, my CEO of the Flow Research Collective is the only person on, out of decades of doing this to people. He actually did it. Not He didn't just like come to me and say, oh, this is an impossible chip level. He actually completed the goddamn challenge, which so is- So that's I, a good, that's a good- I hired him. I hired him. Yeah, he's the CEO. That's why he's the CEO, exactly. Uh, that's amazing. Okay, so let's let's back up a little bit because we're going into some topics, but I need to set I need to set primers with people so they understand all the things that we're going to go into as well. Um, so walk back. Um, wh where does your story with flow start? Because then oh, I'm sorry. Was, I, we're, we yes. were, oh, this is not a two part thing. I thought you were doing a two part thing, so they already knew. No, no, we, no, no, no. So we can, we can, but I it's still totally want to just, up to you. It's totally it up. up. It's totally up to you. <laughs> so sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. Just give me. I will, I will use the other stuff, but um, just whatever you want. Walk through like whatever. of your origin with flow. So where did yeah. not not so, just peak performance with flow in general, and then we can talk about peak performance as well. So uh, it's sort of a two part origin story, but the, the the clear origin story is I became a journalist in the '90s, and there were two things I was fascinated with. I was fascinated with uh, how do humans work, and I was really interested in neurobiology not i felt psychology was squishy it was, it was subjective i didn't i didn't it wasn't giving me the answers i wanted and i found that people who were trying to sort of train themselves or train other people from psychology were making errors i was interested in neurobiology because it's mechanism it's reliable it's repeatable it shows up in everyone it's shaped by evolution and neuroscience in, in the 90s was really cool because like up till then Nobody was focused on big questions. It was like, what do these cluster of neurons in this portion of the brain do? And it's something in the 90s, emotions. Where are they coming from and how do they work? How does behavior work? How does consciousness work? These are like real topics, right? As I'm sort of like entering the field. And this is the stuff that I'm super curious about. Simultaneously, I'm an action sport athlete. I'm fascinated with action sports. And this is the birth of action sports as a, as a thing. The gravity games, the X games. Right, it's a deep punk rock subculture. I'm a punk rocker. I'm an action sport athlete. I fit right, and I'm and I'm covering it, and I'm living in these communities. And I knew enough about peak performance through my the neuroscience side of my inquiry to know that like there's certain things you look for in a community when you're about to see like a flower in a peak performance. And, and in the '90s in action sports, what we saw it's often referred to as the era of impossible. It's where more impossible feats got accomplished than ever before in history. And it's not just that people were doing the impossible, it's that they were you know, doing the impossible 
and then people were iterating upon it. Like two days later, five days later, right? This thing that had been impossible, believed, you know, untouchable by humans. Somebody does it and then somebody comes out and like builds on it three days later and that was happening in all the action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding. It's this great flowering human potential unlike almost anything that's ever happened in sports history. And I'm in these communities, I'm living with them, these are my friends and everybody I knew, like they violated all the standard rules of common sense around peak performance. There was like, nobody had any education, nobody had any money. They all had shitty childhoods, broken homes and you know, horror stories, huge amounts of like risk taking on a daily basis, huge amounts of substance abuse. Normally you put those things in the community together, right? Like what happens? People die younger, they go to jail. They don't reinvent what's possible for the human species. So what the hell am I looking at? Where is this coming from is part one. And when you start digging under the hood and talking to athletes, you start hearing stories of flow. Now back in the nineties, when I was starting this work, especially like we were just starting to decode the neurobiology of flow, which was my real passion. Um, but we didn't even have one term for it. It was, were you in the zone? Was this runner's high? You know, are you being unconscious? Are you in the pocket? Like, like nobody knew. Is this a mystical experience, right? Like the spiritual community has a whole, you know, the Zen Buddhists call it Satori. The Tibetan Buddhists have a different word for it. Rausch is the German term. I mean, like literally like there's this, you know, smorgasbord and even Csikszentmihalyi, the godfather of flow psychology, he starts out calling it the flow experience. It doesn't even get shorted to like flow or, you know, until much later. So like, it's this wild time where we're trying to figure out what the hell we're looking at. What is it? Is it, you know, common in all of us, all that stuff. And that was really where it started. And from that point on, you know, how does this work in the, in the body and the brain and how do we get more of it? I asked that question first as a journalist and then I asked it as an author um, in, in, you know, half a dozen books. And, and now in my current incarnation, I get to ask it as a scientist because I, you know, at the Flow Research Collective, I work with dozens and dozens and dozens of top neuroscientists and psychologists all over the world at top institutions like Stanford, Imperial College, London, and University of California, San Francisco, and University of California, San Diego, and Davis, et cetera. And, you know, we do actual, you know, hardcore research into it. And just to give you an idea of where things have gone from like where we started um, to today, we just published a paper in uh, a really great journal, uh, Neuroscience and Biobehavior Reviews. And it's, uh, it's a hundred page comprehensive look at what happens in the brain during flow state onset. So we now know exactly what happens step by step, moment by moment, millisecond by millisecond in the brain as we transition into flow. The paper also compares flow, which is an altered state of consciousness to the psychedelic state, a different kind of altered state. There's some overlap, but a lot of difference and traumatic stress, another altered state, some overlap, a lot of difference. And so not only do we have a map of, of sort of what goes on in the brain and flow. And as we transition into it, we can compare this altered state to other altered states. And so it's really, it's gotten, there's a lot to do, but we've gotten, you know, we've gotten a lot firmer in what we're looking at and what we think about when we talk about flow. If you are building a company, if you're a marketer, somebody selling something, an entrepreneur, founder, CEO, you are hyper-focused on trying to figure out which customers want to buy your product or service. But the marketing world changes so damn quickly. Traditionally, as marketers, we've always relied on third-party cookies. This helps us understand what potential customers might be interested in. But third-party cookies are going away and marketers are really trying to figure out 
what's next. And this is why I'm super excited to be partnered up with a company called Netline that's solving for this. Now, as third-party cookies go away, one idea that's been floating around is something called intent data. It's kind of a way to guess what an entire company might want to buy. You can see how that could be useful if you're an entrepreneur trying to sell something. But it's a little like trying to guess what everybody in a movie theater is going to want from the concession stand. It's broad and not precise enough. Now, imagine if we could get specific insights from an individual in the movie theater. This is what Netline is creating for us. This is what we call buyer level intent data. And as somebody building a company, as somebody marketing or selling something, it is super important you understand this. Buyer level intent data helps eliminate the guesswork. But up until recently, it's been considered more of a dream than a reality. But Netline's developed a new tool called Intentive that makes this possible. And some of the biggest marketers, myself included, have had a sneak peek and they are incredibly excited about how it could change the marketing game. So if you're getting into the marketing world, if you're building a company and you wanna stay ahead, you can sign up for the Intentive waitlist. They have also released a book that teaches you about buyer level intent data, how to use it. The book's called The Proof Is Out There, Discover True Buyer Level Intent Data. Please check out the show notes and get the PDF. It's absolutely free. It's a great way to see where the future of marketing is heading. And trust me, this is something that you cannot afford to miss out on or not understand. And, and do you feel that flow is the key to performance, uh, especially in, in, Narcon, like in your new book? You, you actually speak about, in the later half of someone's life, how to maintain an optimized performance. So NAR Country, I, I'd like you to walk through how that came about. But then is flow the secret to um, reducing cognitive decline, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia without genetic precursors, um, even like accelerating in physical tasks? Is there, is there some connection? Yes. Are these two? So okay. yeah, let me, so let, me, let me pull back, give you a big picture statement about, we'll just stay on cognitive peak performance for a second, and then I'll, let me move into the answer your question. Okay. So flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. That is not an understatement, right? The, the list of skills that flow magnifies is, is extraordinary. Motivation, productivity, learning, creativity, collaboration, cooperation, empathy, wisdom, happiness, well-being, overall life satisfaction. The reason is, is quite simply this. When we say peak performance, I don't mean anything fancier than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. What is that biology is essentially the question you asked. Is it just flow? The answer is no, it's not just flow. From a cognitive side, when we're talking about peak performance, there's four categories. Inside each of those categories, there's a big long list of skills, but there's a category under the heading of motivation. And this is extrinsic motivation, stuff we'll work hard in the world to get, intrinsic motivation, passion, purpose, autonomy, um, and goals and grit. So that's all under the heading of motivation. There's a similar subset of stuff under the heading of learning, creativity, and flow. And the way to think about these categories is in, when you face any challenge, motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to keep on playing, continue to play. Creativity allows you to steer. And especially if you're interested in the kind of stuff that the work I do on impossible, how do you get there? Where is it exactly challenges or creative challenges? You need the creativity to steer. And finally, flow, which is optimal performance, is how we hardwire all of these, or excuse me, how we turbo boost all of these results sort of beyond all reasonable expectation. That's on the cognitive side. Now on the on physical side, flow does. It deadens pain, it amplifies strength, 
fast twitch muscle response, a couple other things get amplified inflow. So there's a big physical impact as well, but the bigger boost is cognitive. Now you asked a peak performance aging question. I have been studying peak performance aging for almost as long as I've been studying flow for two reasons. One, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is the godfather of flow psychology. Everybody knows, oh, he wrote a book called Flow. What they don't realize is he actually started his career in creativity and then he moved immediately, he did some flow work, creativity, and he never stopped working on flow, but he went right into adult development. Why? Because flow is the engine for adult development. How do we grow as people? Flow is woven into that equation so that all of this work sort of sits in the heart of my field. The other thing is my wife and I for 20 years now have done hospice care work for dogs and we specialize in worst of the worst cases. So if you are a three-legged, one-eyed chihuahua with an abusive past, cancer, heart disease, liver failure, and bad flatulence, you are our dog. And we've developed a very amazing sort of healing methodology. Um, there's a sort of a global movement uh, to double canine lifespan. We are deeply involved in that. There are some people doing really crazy whiz-bang genetic engineering stuff. That's not what we do. We, we take we work with evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and some flow science. Um, and that's the work we do, but we're very, very successful at it. And it turns out the same stuff that works in dogs also works in humans. And this is very well established as well. But my point is I've been in this field for a very, very long time. What happened and what is at the center of our country is um, for reasons we can get into if you want to go there, but long story short, there Traditional story of aging, what I like to call the long, slow rot theory, is that all of our mental and physical skills decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. That is the standard theory on aging. And most of us believe either that's true or some version of that is true. And it turns out none of it's actually true. And there's a wild pile of research that starts in the 1990s and goes through now that establishes all of this very, very clearly. So um, it all the stuff we used to think fades away over time. There's nothing we can do about it. We now know they all use it or lose it skills. So on the physical side and on the mental side, if we properly train all of these skills, we can hold on to them and even advance them much later in life than anybody thought basketball. Now, you asked a question about flow. So let me talk about- Now we're tying it all together. I love it. Cognitive. Yeah, so let me bring it back to your original question. Cognitive decline is a great place to talk about this. So we used to believe cognitive decline is inevitable. We're gonna get Alzheimer's, we're gonna get dementia, and there's nothing we can do about it. And certain aspects of, so there are certain changes in brain function that, that do happen, right? Um, certain things biologically, but it turns out that a lot of things that happen biologically, nobody's actually linked to cognitive decline. So yes, there are changes in brain function. We also, and this is uh, Gene Cohn's work, predominantly founder of the godfather of, of geriatric psychiatry, sort of the founder of peak performance aging. He discovered that as we move into our 50s, there are, because of shifts in the brain, we gain access to what I call a suite of cognitive superpowers. Whole new levels of intelligence open up, stuff we cannot get access to before, ways of thinking, ways of abstract reasoning, problem solving. You get whole new levels of creativity as well, including divergent thinking. That's the outside the box, really creative stuff that gets amplified. Wisdom, which is a very specific neurobiological trait, also gets amplified and uh, empathy. So all these things happen. 
Now, back to the flow thing. If you want to stave off cognitive decline, you need to develop two things, expertise and wisdom. And why is this? It's because the brain continues to produce neurons until we die. In fact, parts of the brain will produce 700 new neurons a day up until very, very late in life. That keeps, that keeps going if you do all the right stuff. Where those neurons are matter. So a lot of the insults of aging are very local, right? This part of the brain gets weak, right? These kinds of shifts happen. And, and most of the damage is in the prefrontal cortex. The newest structure from an evolutionary perspective in the brain is where most of the damage takes place. It's the first to erode. Stuff that's older and deep in our brain, that stays, stays there. So you, how do you preserve the prefrontal cortex? Wisdom and expertise. Wisdom and expertise create very diverse neural networks. They're not localized in one part of the brain. They're all over the brain. So you're birthing a lot of new neurons and you're creating a lot of redundant, diverse networks. And there's, so there's crazy studies on this over and over and over. The most famous is probably the, the Sisters of Notre Dame. And this is one of the places this research started back in the 90s. This is a, a group of sisters and they were, they were very interested. They're very, first of all, they're very into education. Um, so they like this research and they were very interested in peak performance aging or successful aging. So they like this research and it's a very cohesive group, right? They all live the same. They eat the same foods. They do the same things. So really good for science. And they all donated their brains to science for autopsy after death. So bonus. And they started giving them cognitive tests and physical tests every, you know, every year for over long stretches of time. And what they started to realize is that sisters were dying and when they'd autopsy their brain they would find brains were full of dementia and alzheimer's like bang out was plaques and the brain was totally decayed and yet during life they showed no symptoms of alzheimer's and dementia none and they they were performing on these cognitive tests incredibly well and there's this study gets repeated over and over and over again we see the same thing again and again but it's when we start to figure out that certain lifestyle things sisters got a lot of exercise so that's the foundation of oh wait Exercise is neuroprotective against cognitive decline. It's, it starts sort of there, but it's wisdom and expertise that is really what you see more than anything else. The sisters are deeply committed to lifelong learning. It's baked into what they do in the world. They're teachers, they're educators, and it's how they live. So like they're building up expertise all the time. What's the difference between wisdom and expertise? Wisdom is like expertise, all the stuff you're learning consciously. I'm reading a book, I'm learning algebra. Wisdom is the oh, I'm watching the group and it seems like there's these nonverbal, you know, social dynamics that you're observing, you can't quite name, but you're learning what they are and how to figure them out and emotional intelligence stuff. That's all the wisdom stuff. And it's different parts of the brain that, that do it. So those things are neuroprotective against cognitive decline. Here's what matters for flow. When we move into flow, one, learning is massively amplified. U.S. Department of Defense found that soldiers in flow learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. So you get a huge spike in learning and flow naturally for neurobiological reasons we can talk about, it expands empathy. Our ability to see things from other people's perspective expands naturally in flow. This is the foundation of like that wisdom we were talking about. So flow amplifies expertise, our ability to get better at things and is neuroprotective and it amplifies wisdom. Here's where, let me tie this all together in a bun for you. So when I said earlier, Chick sent me high worked on flow and it's at the start of the adult development and flow is how we become adults. It's because 
when we're in flow, we can only get into flow by using our skills to the utmost. You gotta like, whatever you know, you're gonna push on it and push it to the edge of your abilities. You're gonna be a little outside your comfort zone, right? What happens when we do that? We grow, we learn, we get, we come back from that more adaptive, more complex, more wisdom, more expertise. So what's interesting is flow is, I don't, Csikszentmihalyi seemed to argue that flow is the only driver of adult development in the end. He came to that conclusion. And um, I'm not sure I'm gonna take, I go, I'm gonna say it's the, one of the major drivers of adult development. Um, and as, but what's cool about it is it doesn't only teach us how to become better adults and help us grow up, it actually helps us become great later in life because it protects us against the ravages of age. So that, um, those are, I mean, there, and I can go, I can sort of go on and on and on about flow and, and, and adult development, um, but I'm going to shut up now just so I don't talk your head off. <laughs> no, no, or no, as my amazing. friend Lizzie once said, are you calling me to talk my face off? <laughs> You're asking no, all the right no, questions. Known issue, known issue. There's no issue. It may be a known issue, but there's no issue here. Um, so when I, I, I'm curious about a couple things now. So first we spoke about uh, like, so we have learning and, and, and wisdom, which sort of pre prevent cognitive decline. Plus there's some physical activity markers and, and, and uh, thresholds that you should maintain to also prevent cognitive decline. Um, and I, I think it's very easy for people to understand how do I continue to learn? How do I continue to, I'm sure that the, uh, that if somebody was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm not working anymore, but I can still, you know, proactively. Go so yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is really things. cool. Cause this is right in the heart of our research into flow and trauma and the differences okay. things like that. And I, I taught, I hinted at a lot of this stuff along the way. So, but I, ha I have to start with, uh, flow states have triggers. So if you would like more flow in your life, what do you do, right? Flow, the, I was going to ask that, but I also wanted to ask, so maybe I'll tell you what I was curious about and tell me if it's relevant enough or not. I okay. was going to ask, okay. how do you measure, how do you measure learning? And are there, are there leading, not leading indicators, but activities you can do to progress your wisdom as well? Because you said those are the two most important yeah. things. Okay. So I, um, Yes, this is the right. Let me just keep going because I was only okay. going to stay on flow for half a second. Um, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow, and the most famous is known as the challenge skills balance. And when I talked about chick set me high in adult development, I referenced this is what I was actually talking about. So flow follows focus. It shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So there are 26 discovered triggers of flow. There are way more, but that's what they do. They drive attention into the now. The most famous is the challenge skills balance. It says we pay the most attention in the now when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap, right? That's what yeah. I was talking about. So nobody's been able to put an exact number on what's the difference between challenge and skills, right? But years ago, Chick sent me a high put uh, and a Google mathematician came up with 4% as the average number. Now 4% is a little tricky. If you're shy, you're meek, you're timid, you're outside your comfort zone. So 4%, you're already like, I'm a little uncomfortable here. What's going on? But if you're a hard charging type A type, 4% is problematic because you're like, what the fuck? Like I want a cha challenge that's 50% greater. And those high, those, what psychologists call high art goals are great for motivation. Like you get an 11 to 25% boost in motivation for a properly set high art goal. So it's great. You just have to chunk it down. So what's right in front of you is about 4%. Now you asked about learning and older adults. Turns out allostatic load is a concept I mentioned earlier. Allostatic load is literally the impact 
physiologically and psychologically of all our residual trauma. Like all this shit that beats us up along the way, it impacts our physiology, it impacts our psychology. And what we realized is it impacts the challenge skills balance in older adults. So what is normally 4% shrinks down to about 1%, depending on where you are. So one of the secrets to is shrinking challenges even further. So I took on my, the, 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 in our country was, could I learn to park ski at age 53? And standard thinking is this is an impossible challenge. You cannot do this at age 53 for all these 17 different biological reasons. And I was saying, oh, wait a minute, based on these studies and all these things, the superpowers of aging, all this stuff that I'm looking at, you guys are wrong, right? And but nobody had actually taken these studies out of the lab and into the real world and said, okay, I'm gonna put my ass on the line and see what happens. And that's what I did. And, uh, and I got enormous, amazing results. And one of the things we did is we shrunk the challenge skills balance and I, and I went 1% at a time instead of 4% at a time and I, and I went so slowly, it was amazing. Like it's a, some of the early days, what like I walked off the mountain saying that was victory is was silly, yeah. but it, it worked remarkably well. And so, and I, and, and the, the point I want to make beyond this is just cause I ran this cool experiment with myself doesn't mean a damn thing to anybody else. What matters to other people is first I had a ski partner and he was 20 years younger than me, former sponsored athlete who had gotten very, very injured and walked away from the sport. And he decided to come back. He's using my same learning protocol and it's more than just 1% at a time like that stuff. There's a little more going on, but he made amazing progress. And so much so that we went back the following season and we took 17 older adults and used the exact same photo protocol and snowboarders and skiers. Most of them were intermediate level ages 30 to 68. So big spread of older adults. And we taught them how to park. We taught use the same protocol and, and also taught them how to park ski um, ish like issues I'd have to go into the protocol but um then we took it out of uh park skiing and snowboarding and ran the same experiment with a couple hundred older adults and had them just like use it regularly so my point is um it worked very very well for large groups of people right that's sort of the story told in our country at least the front end of those experiments um mm -hmm. and if you want to if you go to narcountry.com the website for the book if you click on uh, peak, uh, peak performance aging experiment or in our country experiment. You can see the video and read the white paper we wrote about the experiment. So you can, there's all this is, you can check it out for yourself. But uh, okay. I was gonna say that the, probably outlines the protocol that you actually deploy to help people learn new skills that- No, so, so, so what we know? did is, the, the, okay, so <laughs> okay. The, the, let me just go, cause this is useful for people cause it, it helps. One, we had, we, the protocol was simply this. We took park skiing, which is this hugely complicated, dangerous acrobatic thing, and said there are only eight foundational skills in park skiing. Mm -hmm. Crouching, slashing, grinding, moving your body in a 180, moving your body in a 360, and doing a move called the shifty. Um, and so what we did is we taught people two new movements a day. The goal wasn't go into the train park and throw tricks. It was go into the train park and play with these new body movements. We had an embodied cognitive approach to learning, um, different learning style. I won't go into that, but literally play with these two two movements a day. The playing with the new movements um, will, for reasons we can go into if you want, drop you into flow, and the flow amplifies learning, and you're going to end up learning tricks along the way. 
how did we measure it? You asked how I measured learning in this experiment. We used, we videotaped everything. So there's a standard way we judge success in free skiing competitions, right? It's a so-called PAVE criteria, progression, amplitude, uh, difficulty, et cetera, et cetera. And we literally had a panel of judges who judge free skiing competitions and other physical things. And we rated them. We gave them a bunch of, we tracked physiological measures and flow measures and a bunch of other stuff like that. But literally we did standard video review of free skiing. And what was cool is if you just want to talk about learning and progression, we saw a 26.5% increase in uh, learning on all five of these uh, criteria um, from the first training session to the fourth which is kind of amazing when you're talking about people who had no park skiing experience whatsoever, lots of fear, right? We're just intermediate yeah. athletes in the thing. Um, to see a 26.5% uh, increase, was it's significant. So lots of, lots of learning. You asked the second half of your question was, what can you do about Winston? This is a really easy, this is a really easy one. This, there's 30 years of data on loving kindness meditation compassion meditation. So it's a very specific kind of focused meditation. Um, this is when Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin, my alma mater, Go Badgers, teamed up with the Dalai Lama and they spent 30 years doing research on, on monks and what goes on in their brains. They were using compassion meditation. So we know so much about this. And just just as a, as a side note, of all the things you could do, if you're interested in peak performance aging, they recently did a study where they compared loving kindness meditation versus focus meditation. And they looked at, among other things, telomere attrition. So one of the reasons we age, there are nine known causes of aging. One of them is telomere attrition. What, a what is a telomere? You have a chromosome, right? And, so, and, it, and it's constantly repeating itself. The chromosome has a cap on the end, like bumpers on a car to protect the chromosome. Those are your telomeres. They, as, as, as genes copy themselves, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at a certain point, the cell stops functioning and it either, you know, then you have problems. So they literally found that six weeks of loving kindness meditation versus regular focus meditation actually decreases or stops telomere attrition. So not only does this stuff actually help train up wisdom, it trains up telomere attrition. What happens in, so when you talk about wisdom, when you talk about seeing things from other people's perspectives, that's actually a part of the brain called the temporal parietal junction it does perspective taking. So, and it does like extreme perspective. So when you have an out of body experience, that is the brain's way of giving you a radically new perspective. So you, why do people have out of body experiences? Like the first one I ever had, I went skydiving, jumped out of a plane, jumped right out of my body. And I was like, well, what the hell is going on? Why? It's literally the temporal parallel junction, which does perspective, both physical and psychological, saying, oh crap, you just jumped out of an airplane, you're gonna die. Let's change your physical perspective radically so maybe you can find a solution that'll keep you alive. That's what's happening when we have out-of-body experiences or one of the things that's happening. Um, and this is all extremely well documented. In fact, there's a, a team in Switzerland, uh, led by Peter Bruger, I wanna say, um, or Olaf Blanc, I can't remember whose lab it is, where they have a VR simulation that can produce out-of-body experiences in you. So you can have this experience yourself. But uh, we've gotten really good at where they come from and, and, and where they happen, but it's the temporal parietal junction going, hey, where this is the same part of your brain that does wisdom. And so when you get to walk a mile in somebody else's moccasins, when you start to see things from other people's perspectives, um, it's the temporal parietal junction getting more active, expanding when we're in flow, this automatically happens. Um, 
our sense of self disappears in flow, right? It's one of the things that defines flow. We know why this happens. It changes in the prefrontal cortex and certain brain activity that dissolves the network that produces our sense of self. At the same time, the temporal parietal junction, the part of our brain that allows us to see things from other people's perspectives, gets hyperactive. So when we are in flow, why do we gain automatically wisdom and empathy? It's this construct that's teaching the brain to see things from other people's perspectives, um, which is incredibly, incredibly useful. Um, but it, it's happening automatically in flow, um, and it's happening when we do love and kindness meditation. So this is a both. And go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go, uh, and and just if you've never done love and kindness meditation before, it's a little odd. It's very. I was very resistant to it for years. I've meditated for thirty years, but I was like, love and kindness meditation is like praying for somebody else. I don't think this is gonna work. Like, really? Are you kidding? Like, I just didn't buy it. But the data got to the point that it got so overwhelming that I was like, Stephen, like you're reading all the studies, you're just being a yeah. moron. And when I got into writing about peak performance aging and training people in it, and I needed a tool, I was like, oh my God, it's gotta be loving kindness meditation. It's the single most effective thing for it. It calms you down, does all the like, you know, stress release stuff you want. Plus mm -hmm. um, any, any kind of meditation amplifies our focus, which will automatically help produce more flow in your life. Um, and you get, you know, telomere attrition and all, all these other wisdom benefits. So, um, it's really cool. And I like the university of New Hampshire actually has, if you go online in there, they've got a positive psychology department, but they have a loving kindness meditation script online, um, that I like better than it's it. First of all, it's neutral. It's non-denominational. It's not spiritual. It's not, it's just, I, I, and what's cool about loving kindness meditation that I didn't realize is it's so much easier than every other guide you've ever done because it's a freaking script and you run the script and you gotta feel certain things and think a certain way while you're running the script. But when you get lost and your mind wanders, you're like, oh, my yeah. mind wandered. I go, where did I, where was I in the script? Let me pick up from where I left off. And after 12 minutes, it's freaking done. Like but that it's seems the, so overly simplified. It's it so like, simple. It, in, in fact, here's the craziest thing. You can do love and kindness meditation effectively while walking your dog or driving a car, unlike other kinds of meditation, because it's this script and you can sort of half focus. It's really a very, very, very cool tool. Um, it's very, I, I, we've, we've found, gotten a lot of success with it in, in teaching that. And, and, and if you're interested in focus breathing, I still think box breathing is the best thing to learn both of which because they give you a lot of shit to do. And so if you're a lousy meditator or your, your focus is hard for you or you know this isn't your thing, which I've been meditating for 30 years, but I fall into that category, right? I'm, it's not my thing. I just know how great it is for my brain, so I do it every day, but like it's still not my thing, even after 30 years of it. And I, I have to tell you, at one point, it was so not my thing that I actually got into a brain scanner, some of the world's leading experts, and I was like, am I doing it right? Just tell me if I'm doing it right. Cause like yeah. my friends are doing it and they're coming back with like tales of like meeting Norris gods and having this. And I'm just like, I'm just doing this thing. <laughs> like I can shut my brain off. I can stay here and I can focus. I can do it for an hour and a half. You know, I can do all this stuff, but like, really, this is, I, so like I had to, I had to have somebody on the outside say, yeah, yeah, you're doing it right. Your brain is doing what the monk's brains are doing. You just ha don't have the emotional experience that most people have with it. 
um, which I find funny. I want to talk about the Kelly Road Show. I do not take my podcast recommendations lightly, but I have truly admired Kelly's journey from the get-go. She was a fresh employee at a Fortune 500, received seven promotions in eight years, all this while building a company that blossomed into an eight-figure empire. Today, she's a best-selling author, top-ranked podcaster, the proud owner and co-owner of six thriving companies. And let's not forget, she's an Inc. 500 awardee, proving that growth isn't just a goal, it is a lifestyle. Now, her podcast, The Kelly Roach Show, dives deep into business growth strategies, specifically targeted for those hitting the six and seven figure mark, but it's not all business. She also explores the habits, mindset, and disciplines of the world's most successful people. It's a podcast. It's perfect whether you're just getting started or you're trying to up-level your success game. But here's the deal kicker for me. She is a super mom and a wife. She embodies the truth that you don't have to sacrifice your home life for success. She believes and shows that life-changing wealth, wild success, a happy marriage, and a fulfilling home can coexist. That is gold. So tune in to The Kelly Roach Show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, it's time well invested. That's amazing. No, I, I appreciate you going into like such detail on this because – um, the average person who meditates, I've never heard this level of explanation as to why you should meditate or why why you should even. And, and by the way, let me let me let me actually take let me take it one step further for you because this is another yeah. thing most people don't know. If you want creativity, creativity can be enhanced by meditation. Only if you're doing open senses, vipassana, or loving kindness meditation, where you're doing a focused meditation, you're actually training your brain to think con- convergently to be logical and linear and focus and put ideas together. But it open senses is I'm letting all this stuff flow in through my senses, usually an open eye, like it's all coming in, but I'm not judging anything. That actually trains up creativity. So what's cool about meditation work, and this is also on the physical side, we could have the same conversation about like, if you wanna preserve certain kinds of cognitive function, is it better to be cardio or weightlifting or like, it's really specific. That's what's happened over the past 30 years. It's, it's not just like we learned that the old theory about aging, for example, is wrong. It's that we've gotten really prescri- prescriptive. And finally, I think the last bit that I wanna, there's two bits here that are worth saying out loud um, about peak performance aging. Um, you can pick which way you wanna go into. But one, the big levers are cognitive. Most people think the big levers are like pharmaceutical or nutraceutical or Mm. doctor prescribed, and they're not. Like the data is really, really clear. Um, Peak performance aging demands challenging social creative activities, way more than it demands a pill or anything you could take. And if if you're challenging social and creative activity involves, and I'm gonna use a bunch of big words here that actually mean something specific, dynamic deliberate play that's the actual recipe. And if you want to take it one step further, peak performance aging is about challenging creative social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play in novel outdoor environments. That's the exact formula for peak performance aging. There is not a drug supplement or anything near there is the first thing. Second half of that equation, you can choose where we go. We can cover both if you want. Peak performance aging starts young. We can rock till we drop pretty much, the research is really clear. And interventions at any age really matter. There's really cool data on like what happens when you start training VO max, VO2 max in your 80s. Like cool data um, all the way up. Um, in fact, the biggest lift you can get 
later in life is if you're totally a sedentary couch potato who's totally decaying away and you literally just, the intervention is I'm gonna start taking the stairs instead of like riding the elevator. Like the little small interventions from totally, that's where you get some of the biggest lift. But the research is really clear. There's a bunch of stuff that you need to do in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s to really thrive in the, in the second half of your life. So the two things, I, the, the two points I wanna make is most people are approaching aging wrong and peak performance mm -hmm. aging starts young. So both are counterintuitive to how we normally think about it, but both are very, very true. I would, I would even make an argument that most people don't think about it. They don't really think about it, at a young, especially at a young age. I mean, I don't know when you are conscious of your, so your aging, what, but yeah, it's what, not 20. It's, it's not no, 30. it's not 20. Well, it, we know um, that uh, mortality. So we one of the interesting things that Ernest Becker figured this out back in the 90s. He wrote a very famous book that won the Pulitzer called The Denial of Death. Um, that says, but you know, our fear of mortality is one of the largest drivers of human behavior. And what the research shows is, is, is that is true, but awareness of that, depending on your upbringing, of course, and depending on how much death you're around, um, of course, but it usually comes online in your 40s and your 50s. And like, so that fear that has been unconscious for most of your life and governing behavior at a deep level becomes much more conscious in your 40s and your 50s. So that's the natural adult development evolution of it. But it seems like you want to start paying attention to it in your 20s. And by the way, like, oh my God, did I do everything wrong in my, like, I, like now knowing what I know, oh my God, like, wow, I probably shouldn't have drank that much booze and done all those drugs, no, <laughs> you know. No, I mean, it's, it's valid. And I was actually going to ask, I was going to ask about all these external factors on, on both sides. So the, like the, like the party drugs and the alcohol, how does that impact, but also what do nootropics and all these other types of things that are pharmaceutical, how do they impact yeah, so state peak performance? Here's what I'm going to hear. Broad spectrum answer to that is from a, you could ask the same question about diet also. What yeah. I, everything I'm saying is true on diet. It's true for nutraceuticals, supplements, it, you know, and most, most medicines. Everybody's system is individual. There is no one thing that works for everybody. It's it's a lie. Like it's just a flat out lie. In fact, there is no one thing that is going to work for you in your twenties, thirties, forties. Like we change too much. It's a living, moving target. So, you know, let's take something that uh, I actually believe in that that works. Anti-inflammatory. So most there are nine known causes of aging. Inflammation is at the root of all of them. So. Anything you can do to decrease inflammation uh, is great. Now, there's a ton of anti-inflammatory supplements that are available. Turmeric is one that, that, that I like, but they're again, they're all very individual, right? But here's the thing. None of them, none of them are as effective as petting a dog for eight minutes a day or doing 11 minutes of mindfulness or having a good conversation with your wife or spouse. Like literally like you got to compare them against other things. If you're doing them and you're doing all the cognitive stuff and the physical stuff, sure. You're getting an extra micro boost, but this is, everybody's lazy. They don't want to do the cognitive stuff. They don't want to do the physical stuff. They want the pill. And when you look at the pill and actually compare it to other things, look at the comparison studies, it's, cuckoo like you would never you wouldn't go for the nutraceuticals you'd be reaching for the cognitive stuff um in fact let me give you another example 
if you want to uh, peak performance aging, which do you think is more important that you get rid of your obesity or you have regular social connection? Mm. Oh, I, well, I would say, <laughs> I would say most people connection. are, the social connection is right. Yeah. Most people actually yeah. say obesity when I've asked that question, you got it, you got it right. But most people are like, oh yeah, you can't be ridiculous. No, I had to pause for a second because it, yeah. it does make, you know, you think. So uh, let me, let me, let me give you yeah. of the like mind body peak performance aging connections, a little bit of a tangent, but it's my favorite of the facts and it's really well established. Um, this work originally comes out of Ellen Langer's lab at Harvard, but it's been worked on by everybody and it goes dates back to the seventies. So a positive mindset towards aging. I believe the second half of my life is filled with potential and possibility. And I can do anything, um, is so, so powerful intervention. It will add seven and a half years to your life. This is one of the most well established facts in peak performance aging. In fact, the first thing you have to change is your mindset. Um, if you can, um, it, it, it tends to be, it tends to be very, very fixed, but like the Ohio study of long, longitudinal study of, of aging and retirement started in 1975, went to 1995, tracked over a thousand people look specifically at that mindset. This is where that number first shows up. A lot of people are looking at mindset and they're going, oh, wow, it has a huge impact on health and longevity and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that was the first time we got a number. We put a number on it. Similarly, let me actually break into a flow tangent here. Flow is phenomenal for peak performance aging uh, for a lot of other reasons, but I talked about stress relief. So when we move into flow, we get feelings of mastery, right? Cause we've talked about skill acquisition, mastery and control. We don't feel peak performance on the inside. We feel, oh my God, I can control things I can't normally control. Well, I'm playing basketball and the freaking hoop looks as big as a hula hoop. Oh, I'm writing and my verbs are doing things my verbs don't normally do, right? Like I'm running a business meeting and fuck, everybody's got great ideas and they're all getting along, right? Like what's going on? That's what happens in flow. I'm in control of things I can't normally control. The two most important feelings as we age are feelings of mastery and control. When we feel mastery and control, these are the two most powerful positive feelings that, that humans can get. It, they boost the production of T cells and natural killer cells. T cells fight disease, natural killer cells fight tumors and sick cells. So what I like to say is flow because it underpins meaning and happiness and well-being. It's not just how we get a life that's more meaningful. It's how we get a whole lot more life that's more meaningful. So you start stacking these cognitive interventions, mindset, flow, creative, social, like this is really how you spend, there's some dietary stuff, right? There's really great evidence that says if you eat a, a cup of nuts a day, you, you can add an extra three years to your life. Um, they don't talk about all the other things you're not supposed to eat and does this work for everyone and what kind of nuts exactly. And you know, um, but like there's stuff on the physical side that will help, but the big interventions are usually, you know, these psychological cognitive interventions. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I don't want to interrupt. If you, I'm if done. I'm done. This, no, is, okay. uh, this, is, a, this is a pause. This is the no, rare, I... this is the rare pause of the Stephen Kotler monologue, right? You got to take advantage <laughs> of this man. It's got to dive in there. It's your chance to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> so the, the, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm taking it all in. And now I'm thinking about all the different parts of my life that are not optimized. What I mean, I'm pretty sure that's pretty normal when somebody dies. Well, by the way, let me, let me go back into something uh, that I said earlier, that's probably worth breaking out, um, which is dynamic, deliberate, dynamic, deliberate play. I said, Oh, that's right. Wanna, okay. Right, what the hell yeah. is that? So yes, 
all of our physical skills are use or lose it skills. So you, you have a choice. You can either on a weekly basis, literally on a weekly basis, go out and try and strength and then go out and train stamina and then go out and train balance and flexibility and agility. Or you can find a single activity that trains all of them. Let me give you an example. When, and this does not, action sports are actually better than regular sports for peak performance aging. We could talk about why, but literally when they stack rank, what are the best sports for, like what should you do to stay young? Number one is tennis, number two is badminton. The stuff that most people do, like going to the gym or running on a treadmill yeah. or even running on the street or riding your bike, actually are way down on the list um, in, terms of, in terms of their benefits. And dynamic activities, action sports are actually better than things like tennis or badminton or, or whatever, but they train all of those skills at once. So they're like, what, mm -hmm. at the Flow Research Collective, I always say, we everybody we train is super freaking busy. So we want to look for multi-tool solutions, single tools that solve multiple problems at once, right? Action sports or sports like these dynamic activities work the best. What is deliberate play? What does that mean? Everybody's heard of deliberate practice. This is Anders Ericsson's. This is the 10,000 hours of I'm going to do the same thing with slight incremental advancement. And that's how I become an expert. And it is true. That is one way to become an expert. It is slow. And it is a lot slower than deliberate play. Deliberate play is literally repetition without repetition. It's repetition with improvisation. So, you know, I last time I went off this jump on skis, I threw a 360. This time I'm going to try a nose butter 360 or a repetition doing the same thing, but you're improving a little bit. Or it could be like last time I threw a 360, but this time... I don't like, I don't feel that good. I'm not that into it. So I'm actually going to dial it back and throw a 180 or a sliding spin 360 where I never leave the ground, right? It gives you a lot more freedom in there and play um, means I don't care about the outcome, right? And a bunch of other, other things that are really important for emotional management. Um, but if we get it right, learning rates go through the roof, flow goes through the roof and you're training up all the physical skills in a single swoop that you train for peak performance aging. And because it's dynamic, one of the biggest problems that we have as humans in our bodies as we age is stuff goes wrong. We break things along the way and we don't, when we recover, we compensate, right? Like you break your left ankle as you're recovering, your right leg gets stronger. You start to use different muscles in your leg your left ankle over time. And what you don't realize is that's compounding over time and it's gonna to start to affect your knee and your hip and your gait and your balance and all that stuff. And the biggest problem is we have two kinds of muscles. We have prime movers, my quads, my chest, and we have our stabilizer muscles. And as we age, your prime movers will take over. They'll start doing all the work and your stabilizer muscles will start to atrophy. And so you'll go, that's, this is what happens when you start, like you take up a new sport and suddenly you, you tear your hip flexor and you didn't even know you had a hip flexor, let alone, you know, five different hip flexor muscles or you just, you, you know, you start lifting heavy and sure you're, all, all your shoulder muscles can handle it, but you tear this like weirdly reared rotator cuff muscle in the middle of your back that you didn't even know you had. What the hell? It's a stabilizer muscle and it's atrophied. So properly, properly done dynamic deliberate play 
doesn't allow you to take muscle. It doesn't, you have to have your stable muscle muscles active. Otherwise you're, you, you sort of injure yourself, right? So, um, you end up one, you expose some weaknesses, which are always great because train them up and, and two, um, it's sort of like one-stop shopping for a lot of the problems you get as an older adult. And let me add the final thing I said here, why are action sports so much better than like badminton or tennis? That was going to be my main, next question. <laughs> one of the main <laughs> reasons is it. this. So I mentioned earlier that neurogenesis, birth of new neurons, right? You want to preserve brain health, that matters. Where do most of the neurons that get born in the adult brain come from? The hippocampus. What is the hippocampus? It's a Latin word for the seahorse. So it's a little part of the brain that's shaped like a seahorse. Um, and it's deep in your temporal lobe. And it's the part of your brain that one, it does most long-term memories are created there. They move elsewhere in the brain, but they're created there. But what kind of memories are really created there? Location. The hippocampus does place. It does location, it does where. It is from an evolutionary perspective, you got to remember where you were when critical stuff happened, right? So the hippocampus is packed with what are called grid cells or place cells, things that help us remember where we are um, when things happen. So what is the best way to birth new neurons in the hippocampus? It's to use it for what it was designed to do, to have novel emotional experiences in the outdoors. That's what it was designed to do from an evolutionary perspective. What happens when we're doing action sports? You're skiing or you're riding a mountain bike or et cetera, et cetera. You're having novel emotional experiences in the outdoors. You're using your brain exactly the way it was designed to use. So what happens is not only do you get more neurogenesis, more neuro, it doesn't just like give you the standard, you get more and you get to hold on to other neurons that would be dying off from far longer. So it sounds like, it sounds crazy until you start looking at it from those perspectives. And by the way, this is not news to anybody. The longest lived community in America, Summit County, Colorado, home to Vail, Beaver Creek, Aspen, outdoor lovers. Two and three are, are Pitkin and Eagle, also in Colorado. They're all like meccas of action sports. So there are some other longer lived communities uh, in America and they, they live uh, longer reasons. There's a, there's a Loma Linda, California, uh, community that's a blue zone community and it's a Seventh-day Adventist community and that certain dietary things and social things and creative that they do actually works but it's also it's California it's a surf community and a biking community and a, you know take your pick community so you see a lot of very very long-lived people in 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 these communities in fact that was one of the things that happened to me that led to our country I called it, I, I used to, I had a name for it. I called it getting geezered. And it was this really weird experience. I was living in New Mexico and I would ski at either the Santa Fe ski area or Taos. And then I would come every spring since I lived in Squaw Valley, which is now Palisades Tahoe uh, in the early nineties, I come back to that area for May. So I've been doing this for years. So I would ski and the Santa Fe ski area is this like little ski area that's directly above Santa Fe, which is predominantly a retirement community. Taos is a ski area that like you go to if you're a really hardcore outdoor athlete. It's a gnarly ski area and people there are outdoor athletes. Squaw Valley you go to if you're an action sports athlete. And what would happen is I'd go to the Santa Fe ski area. Nobody could see how old you are in a chairlift. You got a helmet and goggles and a mask. And 
I'd be talking to people who were clearly 20 or 20 years younger than me or 30 years younger than me. I'd be like, hey, did you see the bumps over there? You checked out this cliff or what's the park like? And I kept getting, I don't do that. I'm too old for that shit. My knees stopped it, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, you know, everywhere I went, I was like, holy shit, all these people are dead before they're dead. What's going on? And the reason it caught my attention is I'd go to Taos, the age bracket of the skiers has not changed. It's the same group of people. In Taos, they're outdoor athletes. They're charging. So all these people are like, I have hiked Kachina Peak 11 times today and skied these gnarly big mountain lines. I, and then I'd be like, oh, have you gone into the train park? Oh no, I'm too old for that shit, but I will ski, right? And I was like, I don't get what's going on, right? Like, and then I would go to Tahoe and they'd be action sport athletes, and I'd be with a group of professional athletes who'd be chasing each other around the mountain the training park. And invariably, the guy leading the charge, my friend Tom Day, who is 60 some years old, right? Like, so like, there's a troop of like 30 professional athletes in a line, and the guy at the front of the line is the oldest dude out there. And they all think of themselves as action sport athletes, and they're doing everything off jumps. And what I started to realize is this is a mindset. This, there's no difference between any of these people but their mindset. Santa Fe, they think of themselves as retirees, so they act like retirees. You go to Taos, they think of themselves as outdoor athletes, but they can't do the acrobatic flipping, spinning stuff, but like they can still charge into their 80s. Like, I, like I'll go to Taos and I'll get hiked into the ground, like hiked and skied into the ground by guys in their 70s. They literally, like, I remember a day where I got so tired that we skied a line to enter it, you had to go around like this 80 foot cliff and I was so tired, my vision wobbled as I made the move and I almost went over the cliff. And the guy I was following was, I was 40 something at the time, I was following a 66 year old guy and he was fine. He had been hiking with me all day and I was like, what the hell is going on? You know, so it, it like it, it's constantly seeing that stuff up close that makes you go, that was what sort of started leading me towards this stuff where I was like, something's wrong. Like whatever we think about like aging, it's not, it's, it doesn't look right. Like when you get into these worlds, it doesn't look right. The people, stories people are telling isn't matching the reality or the data when I actually start running experiments. Can I ask one question just on, on like physical, cause we've spoken a lot about like cognitive and, and, and mental uh, aging, but then we sort of dovetailed into physical. But the one thing that I have a question about physical, uh, what about like even hormone levels that change over time and, and these types of things that so the and, person thinks have a big impact. So uh, it's interesting. Hormone levels may be less of a problem than uh, neurochemical levels, actually. Okay. So dopamine, serotonin, and a couple of the neurochemicals decline over time. That is, that, that is true. And so what they're finding, and this is where pharmacology gets interesting, what they're actually finding is SSRIs which are actually terrible for depression, right? They're like a, like a hammer for depression. They work occasionally for certain, maybe really well, but most people, they, they don't work really well. But it turns out for peak performance aging, they're phenomenal. And the reason is, so the, if you wanna treat depression, you may wanna increase serotonin levels, but you wanna do it in very specific parts of the brain. You give, I give you an SSRI, it increases serotonin everywhere in the brain. Turns out as we age, serotonin levels drop overall so increasing it everywhere in the brain really works well. So a little bit, tiny little bit of SSRIs, tend, this, is so the, this is at the cutting edge of, of peak performance aging. The thing I wanna say about the physical side and the hormonal side and, and uh, 
regenerative medicine is actually starting to get ready for prime time. I've been working with it and studying it and writing about it and reporting on it for 20 years. And it's been a lie in it. For the layman, what that means. What is so it? regenerative what is medicine is the regrowth of bones, tissues, organs, tendons, right? It's using stem cells um, and those kinds of tools to rebuild our body from the inside out. That's what regenerative medicine is back in the... 90s when the field gets started it's hormone replacement therapy it's testosterone and androlone and all yeah, that stuff people, right so old, that's old that men, trt yeah. old yeah. men so that, that that's okay. generation one generation two okay. is prp platelet uh plasma rich platelet therapy right uh, which is essentially a crude way to get at stem cells and now stem cells are kind of a wobbly tool but exosomes and placental matrix exosomes are literally what stem cells produce they're very safe they stay in place. All the problems with stem cells are not associated with exosomes. The problem with exosomes is they're very expensive. And here's the thing about regenerative medicine that people have to know. This is the thing about all the longevity science stuff. And anybody tells you different, they're, they're, they're selling you something and be very cautious. We have gotten to the point that we are very good at ligaments and tendons and we're starting to get better at bones, right? We are not yet at organ replacement. We are not yet at cancer, heart disease. We're getting there, right? And it's this starting to happen, but like the physical, the bones, the ligaments, the tendons, I got a physical, like we're getting better at that stuff um, in, a, in a lot of interesting ways. Beyond that, the rate of change and the rate of development, the rate of growth is amazing. But, and I'm not saying I don't experiment out beyond that, I do, but I'm experimenting with my body and experimenting with my health and I'm, and I'm just checking stuff out to see what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I don't mind doing that and I don't mind the risk, but not for everyone. And you, you know, and I, so the, this, the other thing you hear in like the longevity science community, you hear all these very hyped up promises about stuff. And I think you should absolutely play with it, experiment with it, try it, run this study if you want, if you're wired that way. But know that like, this is where the science is really at bones and tendons and, and ligaments and bones are like, we are literally, um, I broke my back a year and a half ago, not actually park skiing. I, I broke it training over the summer, um, skateboarding and weightlifting and I was being stupid. And um, I used stem cells and peptides and a bunch of other kind of physical tools. And it took about a year and a half. But like you can now, I broke my back. That used to be a, you're not ever coming back from this. Um, and I, I came back for, you know, and I'm now lifting more than I did before my back breaks, you know, all that stuff. I'm totally back and it took, it was very expensive, you know, and that yeah. sort of stuff. The good news is with like, when I first, 10 years ago, when you were getting platelet uh, PRP, it was like a 10 to $20,000 procedure, unless you were in New Mexico. Uh, that's a legal law thing. Um, don't ask, or you can ask, but doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, now my mom just had it for her shoulder. She's in her 80s, and her insurance covered it. So like, cutting edge, you know, 2015 is now Medicare, Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And are there, you know, you speak about using this to uh, fix your back, and and now that it's advanced the level where you can actually use peptides and other things. Um, but this is what like bodybuilders abuse, right? Is this some, it's like the, it's all these. Well, other okay. So yeah, I will tell you before you, before you say bodybuilders abuse it, uh, take my name and type Stephen Kotler sympathy for the devil. 
into Google or picked my book Tomorrowland, the subtitle of that article is why everything you know about steroids is wrong. So, so curious. Yeah. About so that. how, yeah, yeah, let me just, here's the story. Uh, I'm it's early 2000 or 2001. And, um, my editor at the LA Weekly calls me up and he says, dude, Jose Canseco just published this book. And he said, steroids are the wonder drug of tomorrow. You got into a story on this. This is, you're up your alley. I was like, dude, I was like, everybody knows. I've been a weightlifter already by, by that point for yeah. about 10 years. I was like, everybody knows steroids are, are bad for you. And on top of it, I fucking hate baseball. Don't give me this story. Like, I like <laughs> nothing could be worse for me. Like, this is not my sport. These guys are wrong, blah, blah, blah. And he, and he said those magic words, I'll pay you to do the research. And I was like, okay, I'm all in, right? So I spend three to four months in that world at the front end and like, it's a fun house because everything I thought I knew about steroids was wrong. Like every bit of information that I had been told about steroids um, was wrong. Now that's that said, um, including by the way, like long-term studies of problems in, in chronic bodybuilder. You know what I mean? Like there were all these when, when they finally actually went and did the studies, they they find a lot less uh, of the negative stuff than most people think. Now I'm not. Now, as you all know, the Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They have incredible podcasts, so please go check out their roster. But one of my favorite shows is Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew. You just have to understand that some of the smallest changes can have the biggest impacts on your life. And on Nudge, this is what Phil goes through. He speaks about evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every single episode is bite-sized, 20 minutes. It comes packed with practical advice from some of the most prolific uh, entrepreneurs, behavioral scientists in the world, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. I definitely recommend you go check it out. You should listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, enlarged organs, liver. So, yeah, though most and of those that yeah the liver so the liver for example this is great the liver yeah liver is great liver is a great example because it's been so long ago that this and this is not this isn't what our country is about and this isn't my area anymore but liver you have to to hit on the one thing that I remember so <laughs> um it I, wasn't that, I want to tell just the reason why <laughs> I think it's interesting is because if somebody's trying to have a better life in the back half of their life you know after fifty. Yeah, and by the way, thinking about all this stuff. And by the way, I'm not saying don't get your testosterone tested and and and, and you know improve your testosterone levels. Um, that can make a huge difference for some people, and there's literally nothing wrong with it. What I will tell you is, as somebody who spent three years experimenting with testosterone and growth hormone and all that side of it, is um, it, you're not going to get the effects you think you're going to get. You're going to get most of those hormones actually help you recover faster. They don't actually do much for strength or the things you think you're going, they're going to do. Now, if you want to start stacking androlones, you know, you can get, you know, you can get to Arnold. But, um, my, my point is the stuff is effective. It's just not as effective as a bunch of other stuff, right? You can play there. My problem is like everybody spends all their time there. They spend all their money. They're going, looking for the magic pill and the stuff we can do cognitively and physically is a much bigger lever is, is my point here. But, the liver point is 
that wasn't actually about uh, the steroids. That was about, they used to, there was an oral coating. One of the, it was one of the steroids they were taking orally and it was, they want, they had to coat it in something to get it to steroids to pass through the stomach so they could actually get into your system. And the coating actually was terrible for your liver. Um, and that was the problem. That was where the liver thing was coming from. There are other, other, other issues. And there are, I mean, you're still, your genitalia is going to shrink. Um, you're going to develop breasts. You know what I mean? Like those things are going to happen. They stop happening the minute you stop taking, you know, huge bodybuilding doses and they're not going to happen if you take low doses at all. Um, in fact, there's almost no side effects from, from the low dose stuff, but like, I don't find them the mirror. I didn't find the mirror. I didn't find more energy. I didn't find more strength. I didn't like ultimately I was like, what am I, what am I doing here? Like, like compared to other, other interventions, this is a waste of time was, was ultimately my, my feeling. But I will also say, I think everybody's very individual with that stuff. So this is what I mean with like, there's no one size fits all. And if you go down this rabbit hole, it's a long, deep rabbit hole for maybe you're going to get it right. Maybe you're going to figure out what the exact cocktail is for your body at this particular moment in time, but you're missing the easy, big levers that are available to all of us. I love it. Okay. Um, this was, this was amazing. I really appreciate, I appreciate you, Stephen. Like this was a great, great talk. We could do more, but I'm going to cap this one. And then I'm going to do, I'm going to do more in the future with you because we only wanted to one, That's big, fine. well, a lot of topics, but very, very, uh, very, very isolated, like, uh, like, uh, subject that applies to a certain group of people, but there's so many other like communities that we could talk about the lessons that you've uncovered over your career. So we're talking about an aging population, but I want to, like, I would love to talk about athletes, uh, academics, like executives, like decision making, and like all these. Yeah, it's got good. That, yeah, you know, you know how to read. You, you clearly at this point <laughs> know how to get in touch with my people. So uh, let me get through like the next six months of I, I'm on, I'm on, yeah. I'm talking about in our country for a living. Yeah. Um, and then I'm more than happy to come on and just talk sort of general peak performance. And two things. One thing. Why don't I leave everybody uh, with yeah. one gift, which is. We've been talking about flow, peak performance. You may want more flow in your life. So free gift for everybody. There are six known major blockers of flow, um, things that like we're all prey to. And I got so tired of talking about them that we just built a giant disc diagnostic. So if you go to www.flowblocker.com, uh, it's a free diagnostic. Anybody, anybody can take it and we will email you your results with a very detailed step-by-step Here's your issue. And, and by the way, what I have discovered personally is most of us, we got one big one and then there's like a second one. So I would tell you like, take it, work on the, the big thing and then come back like a month later, take it again. Cause usually I, I find that like, we've got like, this is our primary thing that we're screwing up on. And then once we get that fixed, there's like a secondary one that's sort of like buried under the hood that, that is yep. now kicking us in the ass. So I found that a lot true in my life also. So, um, but that's, if you want more flow in your life, if you want to learn more about the Flow Research Collective, um, flowblocker.com will get you that study at flowresearchcollective.com. We'll, um, there's so many free videos, you know, and, and training stuff and, and take your pick. Good. No, amazing. I appreciate it. Okay. Where do people go to get in our country? Um, website, 
When's the yeah, so uh, you can, I mean, you can get it. Too. Yeah, you can get it anywhere, but go to www.narcountry, nar, G-N-A-R, country. Um, nar, short for gnarly, right? <laughs> um, I don't know if you, did we, let me give you 30 seconds on where the title comes from, because you'll laugh. We, I was actually so, just going to ask. I yeah, let me, let, last, last question, because I, I forget. Yeah. Um, so nar, nar is action sports slang for gnarly, it's short for gnarly. Well, most people don't realize, they, you know, they may have seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, gnarly bra. Yeah. They don't realize that nar, action sports athletes, as a general rule, despite the crazy, wild, colorful slang, are very, very literal. They're really literal people at NAR. Gnarly or NAR means a very specific thing. It means high in perceived risk and high in actual risk. So NAR country is any territory, landscape, or terrain. So NAR country is both a really great description of our later years, high in perceived risk, high in actual risk, and as it turns out, what should be clear from this discussion, a really killer description of the gritty mindset you need to thrive during those later years. So it's actually a, it's actually a very specific thing. So narcountry.com, we have, I think it's $1,750 worth of free and very amazing peak performance training bonuses. Um, you get, if you pre-order the book, you, you help me out, you help me make the bestseller list. And as a way of saying thank you, um, there's really an amazing suite of training tools there for everybody. Yeah, I was checking it out before before we hopped on, and it's it's uh, significant. Yeah. Right? Is I I always like to say that like I hate marketing really makes my skin crawl, so I, I combat it by like I just want to tell you about the thing that I'm trying to pimp, and then I want to make yeah. it really then I want to make it uh, make it really easy like I want to do good things for you along the way and tell you about those and then get out of the way like yeah I've done my part. That is the best marketing. I can't hard sell marketing. I'm just wired. I'm allergic to it. If I walk into a clothing store or a sporting goods store and somebody's salesperson is in my face, yeah. can I help you? I turn around and leave. I literally like, <laughs> no, no, you can't freaking help me. You can leave me alone. You could go away and not sell me anything. I'm an old school punk rocker. We hate being sold. I agree. I 100% agree. Um, yeah. What what uh, what socials do you want to drop? Uh, uh, drop, well, uh, Instagram is a ton of fun for me, um, and uh, and we drop a lot of uh, great peak performance stuff on Instagram. Um, so that's uh, that's probably the best place to follow me. And StephenCotler.com is also the place to get me. And okay, so let me give you the proper uh, Instagram is at Stephen Kotler. Um, okay, perfect. As well, I just had to double check too. Yeah, because there's actually. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, that was me too. And then Instagram decided I wasn't a real person. And I couldn't, like, it didn't, there was nothing I could do. I called them. My staff went in there. We're like, here's his birth certificate. Here's his driver's license. Here's all the books he wrote. Like, this is really him. Yeah. And yeah. So if, if anybody out there is listening and knows how to get to Instagram, we'd like to merge those two together because I'm actually really me on both those. You don't know what to do. Good. I'm feeling a little schizophrenic in my social media presence. Yeah, for real. <laughs> no. Whatever. Now, now they know. That, we might we, we might call that 2023 or 2022. That might that yeah. might just be life in 2022. But you know. Um, okay, and then uh, last question I ask everyone, and, and next time you come on, I'll ask you the same thing. Um, so okay. you've had an incredible career. Um, obviously, written many books. Um, I mean, you've been successful in, in a significant amount of different things. I'm not going to itemize your entire resume here. But the point is, 
after all of this, at this stage in your life, what does success mean to you? Mm. That's interesting. What does success mean to me? Um, that's, I don't, hmm. What success really means to me is that um, I am living with passion and purpose and flow. And, you know, I like I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and nothing else. I don't think of like everything else. This is the difference between I always say, how do you know a real creative versus, you know, somebody who's sort of writing a book for, for other reasons? And there are like mm -hmm. lots of reasons to write a book. But like, how do you tell apart? And creatives are always about the next creative. I'm not about the creativity. I'm about like, I want to be writing the book. So like, now that the book is coming out, I don't like whatever happens to NARC, like I'll show up, I'll talk to you about it. I'm excited about it and I'll do the work. But what happens in the world is none of my business. That doesn't involve me. I'm about the creative project. I'm about that. So like my success is that I'm moving from like really interesting and moving and powerful project one after another. I like, I like the fact I, you know, I set really, really high standards for achievement. Cause I don't think, you know, if you, if you're not aiming to be best in the world at something, what are you doing? Like, I don't, if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best in the world at it. So, um, I may never get there. I always tell people, I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. Now, I don't think that's actually a thing, but it doesn't change the fact that I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe, right? Like if, if there's a secret galactic award for that, I'd like it. <laughs> I got it. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, okay, so that's how uh, that's how I uh, close them out. So yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna okay. think about it. I have to say that I've been on uh, like every time I'm on with Mike Gervais, he asks me what I think mastery is, and mastery. I've gotten a very good definite. Like I, the first time he answered it, I flubbed it like I just did with you, and now this thing is gonna eat at me. Like, what do I actually mean by success? It's going to eat at me. You're going to get like a book is going to come out of it. No, it's a good, it's, it's going to change, but like it's so next time you ask me, I'll have a better answer. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. 
That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, 
drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay.